Earn your JD from UNH Franklin Pierce School of Law and join the powerhouse in legal education. Now accepting applications, a top 100 law school ranked fifth for intellectual property law. Apply today at law.unh.edu. Professor Brian Fry of the University of Kentucky joins Professor Alex Roberts and myself to discuss Plagiarize This Paper, which will be in the upcoming edition of IDEA, the law review for the Franklin Pierce Center for Intellectual Property, in his podcast, Ipsa Dixit. This is the UNH Law Podcast. Learn more about the law school and apply by visiting law.unh.edu. Opinions discussed are solely the opinion of the faculty or hosts and do not constitute legal advice or necessarily represent the official views of the University of New Hampshire. Brian, thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, we were happy to lend our studio to you so you could record a few episodes of Ixit Dixit while you're here. Um, so what prompted you to start this paper? I got interested in, in plagiarism and plagiarism norms quite a few years ago. Uh, especially when I saw um, both several hi- kind of high-profile inter- uh, episodes of plagiarism complaints and also plagiarism accusations against students, which in many cases I felt were unjustified and unreasonable. And I started asking myself, you know, exactly what are the justifications for having plagiarism norms in the first place? And to the extent we think that there are valid justifications, what kinds of norms are justified (laughs) (laughs) under those justifications? In other words, what are we trying to accomplish? And are the rules we've actually adopted accomplishing what what we want to? So my initial work uh, focused primarily on uh, the application of plagiarism norms to students. And I observed that a lot of those norms are enforced in such a way that they might actually negatively impact student learning, right? So I see the goal of education as first and foremost students learning things. Right. Right. That's but if you're paranoid the whole time that you're going to get in trouble for writing the wrong thing, it's a little counterproductive. Exactly. Exactly. And the consequences of plagiarism, uh, of a plagiarism accusation are so severe for students, right, that they live in constant fear of being accused and in many cases don't a, don't fully understand what and why they're expected to do, and and B, also feel like a lot of the requirements that are being imposed on them are not actually consistent with their own experience and their own learning experience and, you know, what's actually helpful in, in that context. And in, and in particular, I think it's important to recognize that when we're thinking about plagiarism in a student context, we're actually thinking purely about a sort of student interacting with a a professor and typically not presenting material in a public-facing way, right? And so a big part of my concern is that I'm – to the extent we think that plagiarism norms are appropriate for scholars and journalists and novelists and others who are presenting their work to the public and making representations to the public about their creation of the work in question, those concerns don't necessarily line up with the concerns we have about students who are just making representations about their engagement in the learning process, right? And so I like to distinguish between, you know, different ways we, we think about what we, what we, when we talk about plagiarism, right? In some cases, a student, you know, might go out and just copy an entire uh, paper from somewhere and turn it in. We call that plagiarism, but I really think that's a very helpful way of thinking about it. Right. That's just cheating. Right. It's a student yes. saying that they did the work and <laughs> it's they, a big difference. And they didn't do the work. Right. And the problem there is that, you know, the student is is lying 
about whether or not they actually engaged with the educational process, right? By contrast, you know, we also call it plagiarism if the student goes out and looks at a bunch of things and like gets ideas from various places and uses them in a paper without necessarily attributing each and every one of those ideas to the original source, right? Or if the student goes out and finds a bunch of different sources, takes bits and pieces from them, paraphrases them and puts them in their own words, right? Neither doesn't, you know, quote unquote, properly attribute those those sources or uh, doesn't change them, quote unquote, enough, whatever that seems to mean, in order to not constitute plagiarism. Well, you know, I have kind of a problem substantively with the second of those two, right? Because it doesn't really seem like it matters that much, right? I mean, are we trying to teach students how to think or are we trying to teach students how to attribute things to other people? It seems to me the former is a lot more important than the latter. And a lot of research shows that actually students learn writing and learn (laughs) thinking most effectively by kind of what we call patch writing or taking bits and pieces Mm -hmm. from other sources and putting them together. And that's really common in many other disciplines, right? I mean, artists engage... Photo, video, and art, yeah, totally. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly... You, you, you couldn't create things if you weren't permitted to do that. So it seems quite strange to me that we don't allow students to do that in in a writing context. And more than that, you know, especially when it comes to students, it seems to me the consequences are so out of whack with the actual complaints, Right. So, I mean, if we don't want students to plagiarize because we're worried that plagiarizing isn't going to help them learn, how does it make sense that the consequence is then to fail them? Right. Because failing them certainly isn't helping them learn anything either. It's sort of like, you know, we're going to we're going to punish you for your own good. I just never really understood that as a concept. Right. I mean, my goal is to help students learn better how to do what we want them to to do and to improve their educational experience. And and I I rarely think that punishing students is an effective way of helping them learn. It just makes them bitter, especially when they feel like the punishment is unjust. And you and I teach law students, and I think you've talked about in the paper and in discussions of the paper how this is maybe particularly strange in the context of law students. So you mentioned artists work by patchwork, but lawyers work by boilerplate. And when you work at a firm, you go to the firm's kind brief bank and you pull everything that's relevant because you don't want to waste client money reinventing the wheel. You don't want to waste your time. You think others collaboratively have done it better than you. So you focus on filling in the pieces that are relevant to that specific dispute. Um, So do you think that is kind of oxymoronic? Do you think our time and energy in law school could be better spent kind of preparing future lawyers for that type of writing, for that kind of how do you take what you, um, these materials that you're allowed to crib from and turn it into something that's particularly effective? Yeah, absolutely. And I've seen it firsthand. I mean, it's, you know, when students especially go to like do a first year summer job and the you know, the attorneys at the firm have them preparing memos and helping prepare briefs and all this kind of stuff. And then they come back to law school and are asked to do similar kind of work. And they just do it the same way they did it at the law firm, right? Which makes perfect sense. And then someone will have a freak out about the fact that, you know, they copied something from another brief without attributing it in in a legal writing project or in a moot court assignment or something like this, right? I mean, this just doesn't make sense to me. If we're training students to be lawyers, right, we ought to train them in the skills and 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 modes 
that lawyers actually use. And I think it actually delegitimizes um, the sort of pedagogical process to say, we're going to impose rules that don't exist in the real world. And indeed, rules that if you followed them in the real world would get your boss mad at you, right? <laughs> you know, to deviate from what the firm kind of standard is just because you want to kind of make it novel. That's, that's not how it's done. Right. And it seems very strange to me to say, you know, we're going to have context specific rules without providing any justification beyond because. Right. And that's really I mean, when it comes to plagiarism rules, I mean, the interesting thing about them for me is that um, no justification is ever really offered for why plagiarism is bad. Right. If you question the legitimacy of plagiarism norms, it makes people incredibly angry. I mean, I like to say the only people, the only person that um, the plagiarism police hate worse than a plagiarist is someone who questions the legitimacy of plagiarism norms. Now, with you being a professor, has that changed your outlook on it from being a being a law student, being a lawyer, and then going into professorship? Yes, but maybe in a rather perverse way. So I think for most people, um, my sense is that for most people, right, the more immersed they get within a particular social milieu, the more they internalize the norms and receive justifications of that social milieu. I seem not to have inherited that gene. So the more time I spend in legal academia, the more anarchistic I think I get. Um, awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. So my, my first instinct is to ask why things are justified rather than to ask how I can enforce them. So, you know, my I guess in general, my first assumption is that any sort of authority is illegitimate until it proves otherwise. And that makes me especially skeptical of plagiarism norms, which seem in many cases largely circular and self-serving. In your 2016 piece, uh, I think you focused a lot on what you've been discussing, which is plagiarism norms as enforced against students. And then in this new piece, which is forthcoming in IDEA, which is UNH Law's intellectual property journal, you focused more on academics and you kind of send up those egocentric, narcissistic academics who are obsessed with other people citing them and they're getting credit and things like that. Um, but so let me just ask first, what's so bad about plagiarism and attribution norms? Don't they reward hard work and investment of time and energy and avoid giving credit to the liars and cheaters and thieves? So really, what's so bad about wanting credit and wanting recognition for the work that we've done? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I don't think there's anything wrong with attribution, right? I have nothing against attribution. In fact, I encourage attribution. I think attribution is part of the uh, scholarly gift economy, right? It's a way we pay homage to the people who we learn from and the material we found, avail we, we found valuable. It's a way of speaking to our readers about what we think that they might want to look at if they care about the ideas that we're expressing. And it's a way of kind of sharing among academics, what I object to is mandatory attribution norms, right? What I object to is turning the scholarly gift economy into a proprietarian economy, mm -hmm. right? And for me, it reflects a sort of deep pathology of our society, right? So like, like I say in the paper, right, you can make anyone believe in property rights so long as you frame them as ethics, right? <laughs> so, you know, oddly enough, even self-professed communists will get 
upset about about plagiarism, right? Without realizing that what they're really complaining about is their ability to enforce what amounts to a de facto property right, right? And so I like to say, you know, everyone everyone believes fervently in the form of property that they most want to own. And it just so happens that in a scholarly gift economy, the property people want to own is attribution. And so it helps them sort of legitimize the uh, the kind of collective right to compel attribution to themselves uh, as an ethical norm when what they're really saying is, I just want more of the kind of currency that scholars like to get paid in. So you write in the paper and have argued in presenting the paper that one of the problems of those blow attribution norms is that they really serve predominantly to enhance the prestige of those who already are in power, already have the prestige, mm-hmm. already have the famous name, have been writing in the area the longest. Um, some of us kind of question that assumption and wonder about what about the junior people who are new to the field and trying to t- make a name for themselves? Mm-hmm. What about people of color? What about people who have been traditionally marginalized um, and not cited when their work is built upon or borrowed or um, really wholesale copied. Um, And so what's the kind of utopia that you envision and and how does that better serve people who um, haven't been acknowledged for the work that they've done? Yeah. I mean, I think that's a, it's a tough question and uh, a fair point. Um, You know, I'm, I'm pretty convinced that plagiarism norms largely, plagiarism norms kind of as actually enforced, largely benefit um, existing sort of institutional actors, right? The kind of, as you say, the 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 people who own the most property benefit the most mm-hmm. from the obligation to engage in in citation. Um, and I would say that you know we've had plagiarism norms for a long time, and if they were going to help marginalized people, they probably would have done so by now, right? So if that's what we're concerned about, um, I'm not sure that this is a particularly good tool for achieving it. Moreover, um, I fear that property rights are much more easily mobilized by powerful people than not powerful ones. And so I would be very careful as a marginalized person of arguing for more property rights because chances are those property rights will be enforced against you mm-hmm. rather than rather than the other way around. I mean, I like, you know, as I've observed in the past, right? I mean, you know, normally when we think about social justice issues, the first thing that comes to mind isn't more property rights mm-hmm. um, is going to solve the problem. So, you know, I mean, I would say that, like, you know, if this is a social norms related problem, then maybe we ought to think about what the bad social norms are and how we can address them and question whether plagiarism norms are really the way of going about doing that. Now, there's one particular kind of activity that often is kind of subsumed within the context of plagiarism, but I actually think is a different phenomenon um, or importantly different phenomenon in one particular way, which is senior scholars um, taking information provided to them in confidence by junior scholars and using it under their own name without attributing that information to the junior scholar. But I see that as something very different from what we typically talk about when we're objecting to plagiarism, right? Normally when people say, oh, that's plagiarism, what they mean is somebody took something that was already available to the public 
right? And used parts of it, whether ideas or elements from it, without attributing it to the original, right? In a way, kind of trying to claim some of that for themselves rather than attribute it to the person who initially created it. I think that's very different from a situation in which somebody provides something to someone in confidence and is relying on that confidence to get information or to get input from that person. And then they betray that confidence and use it without that person's, without attributing it to that person. Because I think under those circumstances, it's really more of an exercise, a direct exercise of, of power, right? And it also seems like in many cases, it, it reflects more about the power dynamic between those two people. Right, like the senior person effectively asserting dominance over the junior person in such a way that they know that the junior person can't object. Yeah. Right. The the concern I have going the other way, right, is that if we make the ability to enforce plagiarism norms the property of the original author who's objecting, right, there's a real risk, and I think a a, a, a tangible risk of you know that norm. And, and the scope of that attribution right just increasingly expanding, right? Because the reality is academics are like everyone else and probably worse, right? Everywhere they look, they see themselves, right? So there's a, a real common tendency among academics to like, you know, read other people's work and see their own work in that work and, you know, either lament or object <laughs> to the fact that that person failed to acknowledge the greatness of their own contribution <laughs> by providing multiple citations to their to their work. And, and you know, I, I think that that mentality is behind the desire to be able to force attribution and to claim ownership of ideas that we actually don't think people should be able to own. And I think we ought to think of it more in terms of generosity. Right? We ought to think of it in terms of scholars choosing to attribute and acknowledge the sources that have been helpful to them rather than people being able to force other people to acknowledge, um, to acknowledge their own greatness. What's the relationship between copyright law and plagiarism, or is there any? Well, I think it depends on the context. I mean, I, I, I think that in, in many respects, the motivating feature behind plagiarism norms, at least in many contexts, is for, um, is for people to claim ownership of things that copyright law denies them ownership of, right? So copyright law explicitly excludes ideas from copyright protection. And so especially for academics for whom ownership of ideas is the primary thing that they want, copyright law is not very valuable. Right. I mean, you know, copyright law doesn't really do much for academics. It does a lot for academic publishers, right, who use it to generate a lot of revenue. But each individual academic paper has a market value of essentially nothing. Right. I mean, you can see this in the fact that academics are happy to give away their scholarship for free. In fact, they're delighted to give away their scholarship for free so long as people keep their name associated right. with it. Right. The only thing they care about is attribution, attribution both to the paper, but also more broadly, attribution to the ideas that they are discussing or arguably generating, although I'm very skeptical of the idea that anyone really generates any new ideas in the first place, which makes me that much more skeptical of the legitimacy of, of plagiarism norms. They want to own that attribution, though. And so the reason plagiarism norms sort of evolved in an academic context, the reason they're enforced so vigorously 
in an academic context is because academics really want to own attribution in in their ideas. So I think in many contexts, plagiarism norms are about kind of a, a kind of de facto extra legal way of expanding the scope of copyright protection to things that people in a particular milieu want to own but can't. And I think you really see that in particular when you have kind of cross uh, institutional or cross social group kind of plagiarism accusations where a group from uh, a member of one group with a strong plagiarism norm is upset by a group with a weak plagiarism norm engaging in a form of copying that in the other group is seen as being perfectly legitimate, but in, in, in the initial group is seen as being improper. Right. And so then you have a conflict between norms and, you know, it's it's there's no way to kind of meet, make a resolution there. In other contexts, I actually just think it doesn't make any sense at all. Right. So that, you know, we as academics develop plagiarism norms for ourselves and then we turn around and impose them on students. For me, that makes very little sense. Right. And, you know, even if we want to have some kind of rules regulating students, they should be rules appropriate to students, not rules appropriate to us, mm. although I think we should have the second question is, you know, why are those rules appropriate to us and are they really justified or are they really just a way of us kind of rationalizing our desire to own more than we deserve. You also host a podcast, Ipsa Dixit, which uh, you talk with different scholars regarding their works. What prompted you to start this? Well, a few different things. Um, I'd been a podcast listener for a while. I was a big fan of the podcast Elucidations, which is a philosophy podcast by my friend Matt Matt Teichman. Um, I was also listening to some law podcasts. And uh, I had previously been the person who brought visiting speakers into the law school. And that position, I was rotated out of that committee and I was kind of missing the opportunity to hear from visiting speakers. And I was on my sabbatical and I was bored because uh, I didn't know what to do with myself. So I started just contacting people to see if they were interested in doing inter like podcast interviews as a way of, you know, just forcing myself to read more, forcing myself to talk to people more and to have that kind of engagement and um, provide a forum for people to talk to for people to talk about their ideas. And, and I pretty quickly realized that I I really liked it um, in part, you know, because I could do a lot more of it because it was mm -hmm. much less expensive than people coming all the way to mm -hmm. Kentucky. And in part because I realized very quickly that the actual audience was so much broader. Right. Because when I brought people to campus, you know, maybe if I was lucky, like 20 or 30 people would show up and hear the talk. But when I do a podcast, you know, each episode can get 500, 1,000 downloads of people listening to the material. And so I realized it was actually a really nice platform for broadcasting people's voices wider and in particular for broadcasting wider the voices of people who might not otherwise have much of a platform. So, you know, if you look at the episodes, I think there's a nice mix of scholars. You know, we've gotten a bunch of very senior scholars to come on the show, but I try to prioritize uh, junior scholars, people who are not yet in tenure track positions, people who are teaching in legal writing departments, um, minority scholars, women, etc. So we've made that a real kind of uh, a big part of the podcast. And in addition, I've added a bunch of co-hosts who are also interviewers for the podcast, and I've kept that issue in mind as well. So we have a nicely diverse range of podcast hosts. Um, 
including uh, people who are doing criminal justice fellowships. Uh, there's one undergraduate student who oh, does cool. a bunch of interviews. Uh, yeah, a queer, transgender, um, Asian woman uh, who does a bunch of interviews for the podcast, a lot of uh, especially international law related stuff. Yeah. That's her primary interest. And we'll have some law student uh, podcast hosts coming on very soon. I think uh, the first one will be uh, recorded tomorrow, I believe. Uh, S.J. Morrison from Duquesne University is going to be the first student co-host. You are really excellent and really skilled at interviewing people in ways that effectively draw out, um, that, that highlight some of the best arguments in their papers and that also kind of showcase their thinking. So I'm curious about what your goals are when you conduct an interview and also kind of when you're reading somebody's paper in preparation for interviewing for them, in preparation for interviewing them, um, what do you pay attention to? How do you approach the paper? Mm, yeah, well, thank you. That's a really nice thing for you to say. And I, I appreciate that very much. I mean, I do my best to be an engaged reader and, and listener. And I think that's the key thing. I mean, I try to come at every paper with an open mind and just read it carefully and kind of ask myself, what about this paper is interesting to me? Right. And so sometimes I'll see a paper and like read the abstract or even read the paper and be like, wow, this is great. I got to interview this person. Right. So that's easy. Like I've already had a reaction. I know what I want to talk to them about. Other times I have people come to me and say, hey, you know, do you want to do a podcast episode? And I try to say yes. Right. Basically across the board, even if I don't know the subject area well or I haven't read their work. And so there, you know, sometimes I get things out of the blue that I'm not kind of expecting. But so I, I used to like to say um, – that you know, when I was a when I was a film scholar and filmmaker in my prior life before coming, before going to law school, um, I like to say that the way I like to watch movies is to be as generous as possible, right? And to watch every movie looking for that one perfect shot or that one perfect moment that was just like super rewarding and that I learned something from. And I try to bring that same attitude to reading uh, articles, right? Like. You know, even if there's things in an article I don't like very much, right, I try to focus on the things that I think are really good, right, and bring out those things that are really good. And I've actually found on many occasions that, you know, I read an article and wasn't totally convinced by the argument or thought something was missing, but then had a conversation with the person who wrote it and realized that I'd been missing something, right? Or that I didn't really understand where they were coming from because they knew the field better than I did. And and that I sort of did a 180 in the conversation and was like, oh, no, this makes a lot of sense, right? I also try really hard to interview people who are making arguments that I'm inclined to disagree with, right? Because, you know, I want people to change my mind about things. And it happens all the time, right? I mean, I frequently realized that I had a pretty strong opinion in some area and that maybe I was mistaken, right? Or I hadn't really thought it through or that there were other perspectives that really needed, I really needed to account for in, in you know, kind of thinking through a particular problem. All right. Before we close up, uh, how can people check out the podcast? Uh, well, the Ipsodixit podcast is available on all streaming platforms. So you, know, you can go to Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or I don't really even know what people use. <laughs> it's, it's on all of them that I'm aware of. Um, it's also available on YouTube. Uh, there's no audio or video, but you can listen to the audio 
on on YouTube as well. It's on my channel, Brian L. Brian L. Fry. Um, but yeah, it's it's pretty widely available, and I think uh, I just posted episode four hundred and eleven. Wow. Um, yeah, so it's about 250, 275 interviews, maybe even three hundred interviews by now. And then I also do uh, several additional series. Mm-hmm. So we have something called. Um, uh, Lex Phonographica, where we read law review articles as like audiobooks. So mm-hmm. those are kind of fun. Um, there's also a From the Archives series where I collect um, LPs and 45s of law related material and then post that to the podcast for people to enjoy or laugh at or, you know, it's a very wide range of material there. You'd be surprised the kinds of things that people put on record in the 50s, 60s and 70s, Um, you know, and then there's, you know, there's some other special features as well. Thanks so much, Brian, for joining us today. And thanks for listening to the UNH Law Podcast. Be sure to comment and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Spotify. And now be sure to check out the video version of the show on Facebook, YouTube, and LinkedIn. See you next Thursday. More than 94% of our law grads get jobs in the open market within 10 months of graduation. That's better than Harvard and Yale. Join the powerhouse. Now accepting applications at law.unh.edu.